How's everybody doing? Hoping you're having a fantastic day. Uh, so we are now going to be starting. Actually, we have started. You should have read this by now. St. Thomas's commentary on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, read the prologue, Article One, Article Two. Uh, this is one of St. Thomas's catechetical works. Uh, when it comes to his catechetical works, uh, they're basically his commentary on the Ten Commandments, commentary on the Creed. And then his uh, commentary on the Ave. Uh, those are the ones which uh, St. Thomas as because St. Thomas isn't just uh, the patrons of theologians. Uh, he didn't just write uh, his commentary on the sentences and Sume. Uh, he, he also wrote these brief catechetical works. He wrote scriptural commentaries. He um, he, he did uh, sermons. Uh, we, we actually could do like a study of his homilies, which would be uh, extremely great. So St. Thomas, he was a man of the people. So if you were to uh, step in St. Thomas's catechetical classroom at your local parish, this would be the catechesis that he would give. Uh, so this is very interesting. Um, this is very applicable for a lot of people uh, who uh, may not have uh, may not have paid attention in their catechism classes. Um, th this is actually very similar to uh, later catechisms that are going to be written, like the Roman Catechism. Uh, St. Thomas has that threefold, actually fourfold, um, Apostles' Creed, Sacraments. He has an introduction to the Sacraments, uh, Ten Commandments, Lord's Prayer. St. Thomas follows that catechetical example that had been done before him, and also that uh, was something that was done after him. If you look at the Roman Catechism, it's... Uh, like that, or the current catechism, the Catholic Church is also like that. So, uh, yeah, that that's what we're going to be studying. We're going to be going through his catechetical works. So, uh, might be cool uh, if there are any of you who actually just have a lot of time and want to also look through uh, what the current catechism of the Catholic Church has to say, or maybe look through the Roman Catechism, because they are uh, ordered in the same exact way. I think there's a website actually. Um, I don't know if Hassan knows it off the top of his head. I've, I've ran into it before. There's a website which has the Roman Catechism, the Catechism of St. Pius X, Thomas Aquinas's commentaries, as well as catechetical works, and then also the current catechism uh, side by side. So if I ever find that, I'll make sure I link it uh, in the description. Oh, and here's Lexi to come and uh, get Ava for me. So I'm going to plug in my my good mic, so you guys can actually hear me well. Changing in settings. Can everybody in the uh, Discord hear me just fine? I'm going to assume that's a yes. Okay. Oh, wait, this changes my... Oh, my. This is about to be a boomer moment. Because this changes my... As well okay output input fine okay somebody comment in the chat that it's fine okay assuming that's fine okay let us continue so uh before we begin uh we're just going to say the prayer of saint thomas aquinas name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost amen Ineffable creator, who out of the treasures of thy wisdom 
hast appointed three hierarchies of angels, and set them in admirable order high above the heavens, and hast disposed the diverse portions of the universe in such marvelous array. Thou who art called the true source of light and supereminent principle of wisdom, be pleased to cast a beam of thy radiance upon the darkness of my mind and dispel from me the double darkness of sin and ignorance in which I have been born. Thou who makest eloquent the tongues of little children, fashion my words and pour upon my lips the grace of thy benediction. Grant me penetration to understand, capacity to retain, method and facility in study, subtlety and in interpretation, and abundant grace of expression. Order the beginning, direct the progress, and perfect the achievement of my work. Thou who art true God and man, and liveth and reigneth forever and ever. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. Okay, so um, before we actually really begin, I just wanted to let you guys know real quick, um, if you're listening out there on YouTube, uh, or if you're in the Discord, uh, everything here will always uh, remain completely free. Uh, but if you do want to uh, somehow contribute in in a way uh i do have a patreon just for the new aquinas academy uh you can uh look that up i think i have the pin somewhere and then i also if you want to give through paypal it's just militantthomas at gmail.com uh, or i think i even put like my cash app or something so if you're interested in doing that uh you can don't feel compelled uh because i know a lot of you guys are students but uh those who have means uh definitely consider so we had we had some fun uh, this week. Uh, I've heard uh, from the people who I have talked about uh, talked to this about that this reading was a lot more enjoyable uh, than you get from uh, the the previous reading on the principles of nature. But we had to we had to do the philosophy stuff in order to get to the theology stuff. Oh yeah, I should probably open this so people in Discord can see this. But yeah, this was a lot uh, more fun for people, uh, and that's that's great to hear. And I'm going to try at least. I think I have a stream planned for eight. I might push that back to like eight fifteen, but I'm going to try to keep the exposition of myself uh, a little less and keep this a bit to um, have some time for some questions, whether they be through the Discord or through the YouTube live chat. So I'm going to just kind of dive right into it. So <clears throat> when we're looking at the Apostles' Creed, uh, the first word of the Apostles' Creed is, is credo, I believe. So St. Thomas in the prologue needs to define uh, what this belief is. And he actually, um, this might be a bit of a critique, he actually doesn't explicitly state uh, what belief is, the, the quiddity or the essence of the virtue of faith. What he does, though, is he describes the effects of the virtue of faith and then treats some objections. So to give a little bit of a background to um, a little bit of a prologue to the prologue, when it comes to the virtue of faith, we can distinguish the virtue of, well, the virtue of faith is an intellectual virtue. That's what we need to know first is that it's the act of the mind assenting to a certain truth. That's what it is, an act of the mind assenting to a certain truth. So when it comes to faith, we do this in the natural world. It is, uh, for example, uh, your mom tells you that she is your mom. You believe your mom. 
Why do you believe your mom? Why do you take what she says on faith? Well, because she's a credible person. You've known her her your entire life. You don't know uh, through any sort of intrinsic evidence. You know through a certain extrinsic witness. So we can uh, oppose faith to two other intellectual acts. On the one side, you have the act of opinion. When it comes to opinion, through uh, certain evidences, you are you are compelled to give a conditional assent. So you say, well, I think it's like this, but I fear that I might be wrong. This is not faith. When it comes to faith, it is an assent which is infallible. What do you mean by infallible? Well, by infallible, you mean that you don't fear error. Why don't you fear error? Well, this is uh, the, exp the explanation for why we don't fear error distinguishes us from the other side of the intellectual act. So the other intellectual act that we have is um, knowledge, or uh, broadly speaking, it's called science. So what science is, is science is the intellectual act, or it could be um, the intellectual habit. I'll, I'll just keep it to, to act. So it's the intellectual act whereby we know something from the intrinsic evidence of that thing. So, uh, for example, we can know the existence of God uh, by, a, by science. Uh, and science, uh, as, you, as you probably can tell from me saying that you can know the existence of God from it, is a term which is uh, a bit broader than our modern usage of, of modern sciences or the physical sciences. I can know, uh, for example, that one plus one equals two. I can reason from certain foundational mathematical axioms and know that that is true. I'm coming to the judgment through an investigation of intrinsic evidences. This is different from how we come to faith. Faith doesn't come through an investigation of intrinsic evidences like science does. Faith also isn't something whereby we have a fear of error. Rather, we come to faith from a consideration of some authority. So when your mom tells you she's your mom, you have an assent under that proposition through an intrinsic authority. Now, how are we supposed to uh, trust a certain extrinsic authority? We're supposed to trust them through being given, and St. Thomas is going to discuss this a little bit later, through being given certain uh, what are called motives of credibility. So if some random woman comes up to you on the street and says, I am your mother, would you believe her? Of course not. You have no motives of credibility. Motives of credibility are um, certain signs that you can trust in authority. So uh, when that random woman comes to you on the street, let's let's make it a little bit more plausible. Let's say you were adopted and you don't know your birth mother. And then she starts providing certain documentation or she uh, she you, you uh, she shows you a picture of your your father and you look at your father, and you look at her and you kind of look alike them. 
Those are certain motives when it comes to her authority where you can trust her word on this. Of course, that stuff could be forged and it's not all properly um, intrinsic evidence with, with those um, things. But there are certain motives uh, to trust the witness. So when it comes to divine revelation, when it comes to our belief in the Catholic faith, it isn't something which is science. It isn't something where you investigate intrinsic evidences. When it comes to the Trinity, when it comes to the Incarnation, when it comes to the sacraments of the church, you're not investigating intrinsic evidences. No, that's not. If, if that's what you're doing, then you don't have faith. You're completely devoid of faith if that's what you're doing, actually. On the other hand, if you treat faith as a matter of opinion, if you say, well, um, I am constrained to a certain degree that this is true, but I fear, fear that this might be erroneous, that also is not faith. Rather, faith is assenting unto that which is revealed on the basis of God who reveals. On the basis of God who reveals. That is why we believe what we believe, because God has said so. Now, how do we know God has said so? Well, when it comes to um, that infallible uh, assent of the mind under the propositions of the truth, we cannot elicit that by our own powers. It's something which comes by grace. Grace, sanctifying grace, is infused into the soul. It leaches out into the various powers of our soul to where we have what are called the infused moral virtues. And then we also have the three theological virtues. The one we're worried about is the leaking of that grace into the power of our intellect. And that is called faith. But on a purely natural level, when the church comes uh, to people, we still give some sort of motives that the church, that, uh, the church is credible in what she's witnessing to. And these motives of credibility, uh, we can look at uh, prophecy, we can look at miracles, we can look at how, uh, we can look at the way in which the church in, in such fruitfulness and holiness and, and Catholicity and apostolicity has passed down to this age. We can look at those uh, motives, but those motives merely dispose us for the working um, of the Holy Spirit in infusing sanctifying grace. So faith isn't something that you can conjure up. Faith is something which directly comes from God. And as a note, all that I've said thus far uh, is in Vatican I and it's dogmatic. So just, just to give a quick note to that. So that is uh, the context that we're coming to when we talk about uh, faith and the, um, the fruitfulness of faith and the effects of faith. So in the prologue, uh, first he talks about the nature of faith, and then he talks about objections uh, to the idea of faith. So uh, when it comes to the first effect, he talks about how the through faith, the soul is united to God. Through faith, the soul is united to God. Why is this? Well, God generally uh, is present in the entire world. Um, through through his power, um, through his essence and through his presence, the, the threefold way that St. Thomas talks about. He's present in a general way uh, as causing the entire world. But he's given a certain special presence through faith. And right here, by faith, I want you to gloss formed faith, faith which works by love. 
That's what St. Thomas is talking about. He's talking about the entire um, sort of connected um, organism of the virtues that come about by grace in the soul. So through faith, we're united to God. How is this different than the general way in which God is present? Well, God is present generally through working uh, within the world. It's true. It's true. But he's present to intellectual creatures in a different way, in a new way. Because uh, in our intellects, we have God now as the object of our intellects. And we have God now as the object of our wills. But can't we know uh, God through the light of reason that Vatican I teaches? Of course. Of course we can know uh, through certain proofs. But this isn't God under the most intimate aspect of his divinity. Through the light of reason, we know God through the general aspect of God as infinite being. Yet through faith and through supernatural charity, we know God in a special way. We know God as he is in himself. So uh, that is how the soul is united to God, through our faculties having him as our object. So we think about it, when I look at that cup on my desk over there, I look at those uneaten slices of pizza that I weren't able to uh, finish before I started this. When I look at those, I'm somehow, uh, through my will, let's say desiring uh, that pizza, or really probably my, uh, my sensitive appetite. When I look at uh, my desire for that pizza, or my, my intellect uh, intuiting that pizza, they're present in a certain way in me. And thus also is God present in the soul through faith and through love. This is, this is an error that the, the online Orthodox will constantly uh, make massive mistakes on. They think that Catholics only believe in some sort of presence of uh, created grace. That's their big thing. Oh, with the, with the Latins, they don't have the intimate presence of God in the soul. No, we believe that the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit intimately dwells within the soul through the theological virtues. Where when it comes to uh, my, my looking at that pizza, it's, it's a certain image of that pizza, a certain uh, form or a phantasm or idea of that pizza within my intellect. But with God, it's not like that. God has uh, more intimately united himself to us than we are present to ourselves. God, uh, the uncreated God, is more present to us through sanctifying grace and the theological virtues than we are to ourselves. So this is what St. Thomas means when he's talking about the soul through faith being united to God. And then uh, when he talks about the second effect, the second effect is that eternal life has already begun in us. For eternal life is nothing else than knowing God. So as we know as Catholics, uh, when it comes to uh, the beatific vision that we will want, well, when it comes to our final end, our final end is to know and to love God. That's our final end, our supernatural end to which we have been uh, raised uh, through grace to. We know that uh, for the fulfillments of our intellects and for the fulfillment of our wills, we need, need of course, um, if if you know, if you're in the no conditionally and efficaciously, we need to be united to God. So, um, with the virtues of uh, faith and the virtue, well, the virtues of faith and charity, 
we in a certain way begin in a in an inchoate in a uh, in a weakened in a sort of beginner uh, form eternal life because by faith we begin to we begin to know God as he is in himself we don't see God as he is as he is in himself we're talking about seeing somehow by corporeal eyes of course not we're talking about uh, by the difference between knowledge and seeing where um, we, 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 I might, uh, for example, um, and this is, again, uh, just a very imperfect example. I might know Rome by faith. Uh, somebody told me Rome exists. I might know Rome by faith. But it's different than knowing Rome by sight, by going and seeing it, and, and by experiencing uh, all that Rome has to offer. But in, in a certain way, uh, when it comes to my knowledge of Rome by faith, it's a certain beginning of, of that fully consummated form of, of, of actually seeing it, of actually going to St. Peter's and seeing, or this, or the Sistine Chapel and seeing the glorious uh, art that's there. And Hassan's getting mad right now that I'm mentioning the art in the Sistine Chapel, but uh, I, I just see the see the art and see see all the all the stuff there is to see in Rome. It's different, but they're they're connected in a certain way. So now the third good uh, is a right direction that it gives to our present life. Uh, because by faith, uh, we know the moral law. Um, so, yeah. And then we also, by faith, overcome uh, temptations. And I kind of, uh, I, I lied that I was going to take this <laughs> quickly. So there you go. You, you, have your, um, you have your three and your four right there. Okay, now we're going to deal with some objections. Somebody says, well, it's foolish to believe what can't be seen. And then no one should believe in things that we he cannot see. This is the Redditor objection. The Redditor, oh, you... You believe in you believe in God. You're you're silly. Uh, all all the all the desert nomad shepherd dudes are writing this. And you still believe in it? You're you're stupid, stupid guy. That's the that's the redditor objection right here. Saint Thomas, uh, he's going to answer it. He says, "Well, we have imperfect intellects. This should be obvious." If uh, and then he gives an example. You you're you're so weak. You can't even know the entire nature perfectly of a fly. How are you going to expect to know God? This this is why I really don't uh, I, I don't get all of these uh, natural theists out there, and and I think sometimes uh, some, especially Thomists, can be a little bit too uh, jolly with them. Just be like, oh, you you believe in God, I believe in God, and yes, by nature, um, they can know God, but by revelation. They, they, they just know certain uh, shadows, images, and traces. Um, they're, they're, their knowledge is quite weak. But by revelation, we have, we have God himself uh, speaking to us. <clears throat> God himself, under his most uh, intimate aspect, becomes the object of our intellect. So when it comes to something as great as God, when we can't even know the nature of, of a little fly... Obviously, this is going to be something that requires a higher revelation uh, to us, or we're just going to say that we can we can barely know uh, barely know uh, what God is not, much less uh, what God is. And then this uh, this this one I thought was a bit funny. It's like if you uh, if you have a certain person who who goes into a lecture hall, let's say like a I don't know a biology lecture, and he's he's unlettered, and he's he starts. Uh, yelling about how stupid they are and how wrong they are. Obviously, very obviously, this person is just going to be a fool. They're going to be a big fool. 
So uh, when it comes to the mastery of God, we're going to need to uh, listen to a bit of a higher authority than ourselves. And then 30 points out, like, you, you don't you don't live life like this. Everybody um, is going to believe in things without seeing. Uh, this is just a general part of life. You, you can't even know who your parents are without this. And then finally, uh, and this is, this is these, I want to read these last two paragraphs uh, in detail. Because this is really uh, St. Thomas developing um, a theory or, or at least a um, an expression of the motives of credibility that I talked about earlier, where you where the uh, witness is rendered uh, believable. Finally, one can say also that God proves the truth of the things which faith teaches. Thus, if a king sends letters signed with his seal, no one would dare to say that those letters did not represent the will of the king. Like matter, everything that the saints believed and handed down to us concerning the faith of Christ is signed with the seal of God. This seal consists of those works which no mere creature could accomplish. They are the miracles by which Christ confirmed the sayings of the apostles and of the saints. So how principally are we going to know that the, that the words of God that, that come through the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church are the will of God? are the words of God. Well, we know because we know that the words of God, because they, they represent the work of God. And this is not something that the, uh, that, that mere creatures could accomplish. If, however, you would say that no one has witnessed these miracles, I would reply in this manner. It is a fact that the entire world worshiped idols. The faith of Christ was persecuted as to the histories of the pagans also testify, but now all are turned to Christ. Wise men and noble and rich, converted by the words of the poor and simple preachers of Christ. Now this fact was either miracle or it was not. If it is miraculous, you have what you asked for, a visible fact. If it is not, then there could be not be a greater miracle than the whole world should have been converted without miracles. That, that, that kind of goes hard. And we need go no further. We are more certain, therefore, in believing the things of faith than those things which can be seen, because God's knowledge never deceives but us, but the visible sense of man is often in error. I, uh, to, to kind of illustrate this point of what St. Thomas is saying, um, I, was, I was once in a discussion, uh, it was on the politics and religion uh, server, and uh, I was doing a bit of an AMA, and somebody uh, said something to the effect of uh, bringing up the point of, like, what, what would you do kind of if, like, Pope Francis decided to ordain women priests? Hassan and I had actually, ironically, had talked about that uh, a few days before. Like, what, what would you do if it was just rendered um, right before your eyes that the Catholic Church, uh, that the Catholic faith was false? And I, I responded that, I would be more sure, I am more sure currently, right now, in the position I'm at, having supernatural faith, I am more sure that the Catholic faith is true than I am of my own existence. That That is the virtue of faith right there. Because my own witness of my own existence is less certain to me than God who can neither deceive nor be deceived. That is how we view faith 
That is faith. That is what the Catholic Church teaches. When St. Ignatius said that if the Catholic Church says it's white and it's black, I will believe it's white, he wasn't joking. Because the proximate rule of faith for us is the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So when the Church says something, because she has been given the certain marks of proximately representing uh, and, and as the condition of application of the of the uh, revelation of Jesus Christ, we are more certain of what the church says, you know, obviously uh, the remote rule of faith as well, tradition and uh, scripture. We are more certain of that than we are of the various natural truths. I would be, I would be more surprised if the papacy was disproven than I would be if the law of non-contradiction was disproven. Why? Because, again, the witness of God is greater than the witness of my own intellect. It's true. It's so true. So, that is how we view faith. And this, again, isn't something that is just the teaching of St. Thomas. This isn't something that is just the teaching of me. This isn't something that's just the teaching of uh, random Catholic theologians. This is the teaching of the Holy Catholic Church when it comes to the virtue of faith and the relationship between faith and reason. That's what it is. Okay, so now that I have, uh, I kind of wanted to spend the most time right there uh, just because I wanted to, I, I think that's where a lot of the, um, a lot of the errors actually come up. So um, when it comes to St. Thomas's uh, first article, uh, he's not really proving the existence of God um, like we like we would expect. Uh, what, what he's doing here is he's actually going against um, those who deny providence. So he gives a he gives a cool um, I, I kind of wasn't too concerned about uh, this section, but he gives a cool. Uh, argument against those who complain about evil, the, the, the problem of evil. And I think this is, uh, he calls them, <laughs> he calls them stultum. Uh, if, if you, if you know what uh, stultus is, it's basically an idiot. So, uh, but this is indeed absurd is a little bit of a, a, a light translation from whoever the translator is. I didn't know this until now. Um, say, say Thomas is getting a bit heated. So uh, basically what, what these people are saying, there are those, however, who believe that God rules and sustains all things of nature. Nevertheless, do not believe God is the overseer of the acts of men. Hence, they believe that human acts do not come under God's providence. They believe thus because they see in this world how the good are afflicted and how the evil enjoy good things. So that divine providence seems to disregard human affairs. So these people, um, they're following, if memory serving me right, I think it was Cicero, uh, was was one of the progenitors in his writings they say well god has control god has providence over all the natural things but not over the wills of men the wills of men uh, because uh, we are endowed with natural liberty these uh, people who saint thomas uh, is clearly um uh, clearly referring to as quasi uh, atheistic um what what these people are saying is that God does not uh, in any way have providence over the free acts of men. And this is, this is what he responds with. So basically this is 
classic problem of evil. But this is indeed absurd. It is just as though a person who is ignorant of medicine should see a doctor give water to one patient and wine to another. He would believe that this is mere chance, since he does not understand the science of medicine, which for good reason prescribes for one wine and for another water. So it is with God, for God in his just and wise providence knows what is good and necessary for men. And hence he afflicts some who are good and allows certain wicked men to prosper. But he is foolish indeed, who believes that this is due to chance, because he does not know the causes and methods of God's dealing with men. So, it requires, uh, when it comes to our consideration of divine providence, intense humility. It is as if, uh, when you go to the... It, have you ever... Um, I don't know if anybody, my, my mother wasn't like that. My mom was great. Um, but if you ever been to like, I've seen other mothers do this. They'll go to like the doctors with, with their kids. They'll go to like a pediatrician or something. And the, the, um, sorry, I saw a message from Hassan and I didn't want to, it distracted me. Hassan stopped distracting me by messaging me. Um, you have this, this mother, you go to the doctor's appointment, and the mom like argues with the doctor the whole time. It's like it's really, it's really, really cringe. She just argues with the doctor, like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Don't do this, don't do that. Like, what are you doing? You're hurting them, like if if the if the child is in pain or whatever. That that is how kind of we sometimes uh, will act towards divine providence. We see um, people dying and we see natural disasters and we see bad things happen in our life or in the lives of those who we love. But we just don't know. We just don't know when it comes to providence. Because providence, we have certain promises from God. It's revealed that all things will work together for the good of those God loves. That all things work towards the glory of God. That's that's assured to us. So we, um, in our uneducated uh, in the ways of providence uh, type way, when we have providence crash up against us, we uh, we can sometimes falter or sometimes doubt. But that that is, uh, as Saint Thomas says, that's stultum. Uh, that's uh, it's idiotic if you, if you want to put it like that. It's dumb. It's stupid. We often, uh, myself included, I'm not. I'm not just like harping on you guys and calling you calling you stupid. But objectively, yes, we're 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 being quite stupid when these feelings arise uh, within us. Because if we consider the case, this isn't at all uh, something which uh, should be surprising. It isn't uh, that we uh, are are ignorant of the way in which God is working in this world, just because of the manifold complexity of the entire universe. Again, we can't even know the fly. How are we supposed to know the entire workings of the universe? Okay, so there's one other text. So he's talking about, um, after this, he talks about the proofs against multiple gods. And then I'm actually going to, that, that uh, message from Hassan might be important. 
Oh, I'm not streaming the exposition. I'm only streaming the English text. Bruh, I'm, I'm oh man, I've been debunked. Hassan, Hassan has debunked me. Okay. No, no, I am streaming the, the right text. You lied to me, Hassan. Okay, so when it comes to multiple gods, where does he prove it? Oh, there it is. So this actually, um, if you're if you're not aware, this is one of my favorite proofs for the existence of God. He kind of hides it in here for as as a proof for only uh, one God. So this, um, if if you have some difficulty understanding Saint Thomas's fourth way, if you've read that section in the Summa, that's what this is actually his fourth way, stated in a very different way that I think is a bit more intuitive for us. So he says, let us leave more subtle reasons for the present and show by a simple example that all things are created and made by God. If a person upon entering a certain house should feel a warmth at the door of the house and going within should feel a greater warmth. And so on the more he went into its interior, he would believe that somewhere within was a fire, even if he did not see the fire itself, which caused this heat, which he felt. So also is it when we consider the things of this world. For one finds all things arranged in different degrees of beauty and worth. And the closer things approach to God, the more beautiful and better they are to be found. Thus, the heavenly bodies are more beautiful and nobler than those which are below them. And likewise, the invisible things in relation to the visible. Therefore, it must be seen that all things, all these things proceed from one God who gives his being and beauty to each and everything. So this is this is uh, one of St. Thomas's favorite arguments for the existence of God. And this is a very central theological principle, actually, uh, if you begin to pay attention to this as you uh, read through St. Thomas. It, it comes up in a weird number of places. His discussion of the agent intellect in um, the end of Prima Pars, his discussion of law in Prima Secundae. Um, those, those are the two I can think of off the top of my head. But it, it, this, this principle actually appears in a lot of different places is when you look at the things around you, everything um, has certain imperfections and certain perfections. So when you have something which is a pure perfection, such as being, beauty, truth, goodness, and the like, it can't be something which is essential in that thing. Because if something's essential, it's necessary. Uh, for example, um, I am essentially man. Therefore, on the supposition that I exist, it's necessary that I be a rational animal. Now, with the uh, limited and imperfect nature of all of these things around us, they can't essentially have uh, this sort of perfection of being goodness and, and the like. I'll just, I'll just keep it to beauty. They can't have this perfection of beauty. It must be something which is not of themselves, of their essence, but something which is given to them, participated in them. Now, we can't uh, follow this chain uh, up to eternity. Therefore, there must be a, a, a fount, a source of beauty, beauty uh, that is beauty itself. And this is God. This is uh, uh, what all men call God, if you want to put it like that. This, this, is, this is a universal principle um, within St. Thomas. He does this uh, very cool things. Um, if you ever read his uh, what work? Uh, Book of Causes, his commentary on the Book of Causes, he does some really interesting things uh, when it comes to this principle uh, with being. So um, the errors, uh, I don't think we really need to uh, worry about that. Existed from eternity. 
made the world with pre-existing matter. So it leads us to a fivefold benefit. This is a cool way of doing theology. First, we are led to the knowledge of the divine majesty. Second, we are led to give thanks to God because he's the creator of all things. Third, we are led to bear our troubles in patience. Although every created thing is from God and is good according to its nature, yet if something harms us or brings us pain, we believe that such comes from God, not as a fault in him, but because God permits no evil that is not for good. Affliction purifies from sin, brings low the guilty, and urges the good to love God. And once, once, you, once you begin to start understanding this third point, uh, this, is a, this is a very fruitful point of meditation right here. Once you begin to understand this third point, uh, it just changes the way in which you view uh, your entire life. Fourth, we are led to the right use of created things, which they're made for the for his glory and then for our profit. Fifth, we are led also to acknowledge the great dignity of man. And uh, oh, oh, no, uh, St. Thomas, uh, he was reading Vatican II again. Uh, dignity of man. Oh, no. Sorry, I just throw that one in there. Okay, um, now... Uh, we get into the last portion. Let me actually I'm gonna stop sharing my screen just for one second. I got to email somebody. Stop screaming! Screaming! Stop streaming! I'm supposed to have a stream right after this. Let me check. Making sure it's still good. Okay, I emailed him. Okay, now we can get back to all the fun. Okay, let me share my screen again. There you go. Okay, what did Hassan say? Did he say something important? Oh, he's trolling me. Hassan. Okay. So now uh, to the second article. So in the second article, he has his little intro that we need to not only believe in one God, we also need to believe um, in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't um, believe in a monad, we believe in a trinity. So now he proves it from scripture, um, basically uh, from right here. And then he shows the various different errors uh, when it comes to the Trinity, and these are a bit more useful for us, actually, because when it comes to something like the Trinity, uh, the consideration of error uh, helps drive us uh, to the truth. So first, we have Photonus. So Photonus, for instance, uh, not Photius, Photonus. Photius has a different error. So Photonus, for instance, believe that Christ is not the Son of God, but a good man. So that's obviously dumb. I don't even think we need to even cover that. Uh, I don't. Basically, like he's like, yeah, he's not God. Like, okay, that's that's just dumb. Okay, Sibelius. Sibelius said that Christ indeed was before the Virgin, but he held that the Father indeed became incarnate, and therefore the Father and the Son is the same person. So, uh, with Sibelius, he believed in what's called modalism. Um, it's better called Sibelianism, but basically, you kind of have the old. Um, mask, uh, sort of. If you, ever, if you ever, if you ever heard anybody give that terrible sort of analogy for the Trinity, it's like a guy and he puts on like the mask 
of the father and then he puts on the mask of the son or it's like i am uh i am one person i am a a father i am a brother and i'm a son uh in different ways but i'm still one person yeah that that that'd basically be sibelius um yeah and then you have uh air uh, actually um he proves proves it from scripture i'm not alone but i'm the father who sent me so you can't have somebody send themselves there you go and then Arius, Arius, he's he's a little bit more interesting. Arius is a is a tad more interesting. So Arius, he's gonna believe he he, he believes in um, the procession of the son from the father, but rather than believing uh, what we believe in a so called imminent procession, he's gonna believe in what's called a transient pr procession. So the son goes out of the godhead, just like a a, a human father might beget a human son where you are uh, only specifically the same. You're of the same species as your father, uh, but you are numerically different. You're different individuals. Remember, we talked about specific and numerical identity last time. Uh, it's chapter six of On the Principles of Nature, if you don't remember that. So that's what uh, Arius believed. So it is therefore clear that we must believe that Christ is the only begotten son of God, the, the true son of God, who always was with the father, and that there is one person of the son and another of the father who have the, the same divine nature. All this we believe now through faith. We shall know with perfect vision in the life eternal. So now he's going to give uh, give the insanely helpful explanation um, for the way in which procession works. And right now we're just focusing on the father and the son. So I guess I won't. I can call it specifically generation. If you're not aware, um, the, the son is called the son because the son is generated from the father. This is analogous. This is, there's a certain analogy which can be found between the way in which a human father begets a human son, brings forth somebody of the same species as himself. But we make a certain negation because with, with human generation, the son goes out from the nature of the father. Uh, there isn't where with with divine generation there's a full communication of the entire numerically singular divine essence that self-same um, essence from the father to the son and he's going to give a fantastic um he's going to give fantastic explanation here i just love it so uh it must be known that different things are different modes of generation this is uh universal throughout the writings of uh, St. Thomas. In, in Summa Contra Gentiles, he gives a very detailed explanation of this from all of the different layer uh, levels of generation. The generation of God is different from the, the generation of other things. Hence, we cannot arrive at a notion of divine revelation except through the generation of that created thing, which more closely approaches likeness to God. So when we look around all the generations around us, we have plant generating plant, we have animal generating animal, we have man generating man, we have the intellect generating ideas or words. We have many different types of generation uh, that occur all throughout creation. But when it comes to God, we are, um, we are, we are going to want to rise to the highest types of generation. So uh, when uh, the one that St. Thomas says is going to be the highest, although in other places he also talks about angelic um, the angelic intellect, which would be a little bit too complicated here. We've seen that nothing approaches in likeness of God more than the human soul. The manner of generation in the soul is affected in the thinking process in the soul of man, which is called a conceiving of the intellect. 
So let's say right now, uh, think of Christian B. Wagner right now. Think about it. What you have is you have your intellect is eliciting, it's bringing forth a certain concept. Now, when you speak it, it's something which goes outside of you, and that's called the spoken word. But before you have the spoken word in your intellect, you have the thought word. You have the thought word or the mental word, if you want to put it like that, or, or, or a concept or an idea. That's what's in your intellect before you speak it. Now, is that something which goes outside of your intellect? No, of course not. It remains within it. So this is going to most closely approach uh, in creation the way in which the generation of the son happens. Because the son um, is, is generated from the father in an imminent manner. Just as your word is generated from your intellect in an imminent manner. Not in a transient manner that is going outside of it, but remaining inside of it. Imminent. So this conception takes its rise in the soul as from a father. Its effect is called the word of the intellect or of man. In brief, the soul by its act of thinking begets the word. So also the son of God is the word of God. Not like a word that is uttered exteriorly, for this is transitory. But as one, <coughs> but as a word is interiorly conceived. And this word of God is of one nature with God and equal to God. <clears throat> the testimony of St. John concerning the word of God destroys the three heresies, namely that of Photinus, uh, and the words, in the beginning was the word, and that of Sibelius, and saying, and the word was with God, and that of Arius, and saying, the word was God. And then there's a difference, because um, a, a lot of times we, uh, this is, is a certain vice that we have, we have to fight. When we are looking at the um, various analogies that we have in creation to divine things, we look at them in a manner that is one-to-one. -one. We don't consider the way in which uh, they're diverse, they're different. So when it comes to the word that we conceive uh, in our intellects, it's an accident. We already went over accidents, so if you don't know accidents, uh, sorry, we already went over it. Don't have time to do a review. So the word in our intellect is an accident. It's an accident of our intellect. But when it comes to uh, God, that imperfection of the production of an accident is removed. So rather than producing an accident, it produces something which is subsisting. It produces another subject. So it's something which is imminent. We know that imminent procession can happen because we see it actually happening in our own intellects. But this procession is both imminent and it's more perfect. It, so we, we can look at, we can kind of look uh, to give, uh, I think, a little bit more helpful analogy. Let's look at human generation. And this is why actually the sun is both called sun and word. Because it's uh, threading the needle between these two imperfect images. And we kind of need to combine these two images uh, in our mind. Getting rid of the, uh, the false connotations and retaining the good connotations. So when it comes to human generation... Uh, you have a father, beget a son. The son is a subsisting subject. It's, it's a production of, of a subject. There's a certain uh, relationship of, uh, of one person, that is the um, incommunicable um, individual uh, substance of a rational nature, and another person. 
But what's the imperfection there with the father and the son? The perfection is that there's a subsisting person which is produced. The imperfection is that it's transient. It goes outside from it, sort of stretches out, where they're only specifically identical. They're not numerically identical. Now let's look at our intellects. With our intellects, we've solved that problem, the transiency, that the, um, that the word goes outside of the intellect. We've solved that problem. But another problem arises. It's an accident. It's not subsisting. So these two images in the eternal word of God, all of the perfections that are present in creatures are eminently and formally present in God. All of the, all of the pure perfections of creatures, that is. So the perfections from the one and the perfections of the other type of generation are retained. That is the production of, of subsisting and then also numerical identity. So these two sort of perfections on each side are retained and we bleach it of all of the imperfections. We get rid of them. We clean them off. That is the imperfection of transiency and the imperfection of producing an accident. So um, that is, uh, there's five points, uh, five points when she gave birth to the word of God. First she heard, um, because there, there's sort of a final exhortation here um, to the learning of sacred scripture. So um, we have the Blessed Virgin uh, observed these five points when she gave birth to the word of God. First, she heard what was said to her. Then she gave her consent through faith. Uh, and she also received and carried the word in her womb. Then she brought forth the word of God. And finally, she, she nourished and cared for him. And then contemplating the life of the Blessed Virgin uh, in the Holy Rosary of Our Lady. We are able to uh, truly see the word of God through our eyes and ourselves participate um, in that rumination on the word of God. So that's all uh, I have for this. Um, I'm a little late. I'm going to check my email, but we can kind of chat. I'm going to. Oh, my gosh. Hassan. So. Okay. Oh, there's somebody asking about the chill stream. There will not be a chill stream tonight. I have a different stream tonight. Okay. So I'm going to kill the YouTube broadcast. Y'all have fun. And then we can chat for a minute on Discord. <laughs>